I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to a London Review of Books podcast. The London Review has published Alan Bennett's diary every year since 1984. Here he reads extracts from his diary for 2011, which appears in full in the issue of the LRB dated 5th of January 2012. 6th of January 2011 The alterations we've been having done are now pretty much finished, thanks to Max, a young Latvian who's unsmiling but an excellent carpenter, and Eugene, much jollier and from New Zealand, who supervised it all. Walking round the job this evening, Rupert is shocked to discover in the bathroom above the bath a crudely made wooden cross. He takes this to be the work of Max, who, scarcely out of his teens, already has two children and is, I imagine, Catholic. Rupert, whose feelings about religion are more uncompromising than mine, finds the cross disturbing and is determined to ask Eugene to tell Max to take it down. I'm less exercised by it, seeing it as some sort of dedication the sort of thing, though more crude, that a medieval workman might have put up at the completion of a job. We are both of us wrong, as when Eugene is approached, he explains it's not a cross at all, but a makeshift coat hanger he's rigged up over the bath in order to dry his anorak. 15th of April Seeing a banana skin on the pavement reminds me how, when I first read The Dandy and The Beano, the presence of a banana skin meant that inevitably it was going to be slipped on. No matter that at that time, in the early 1940s, few children had seen, let alone eaten, a banana, the skin was still shorthand for calamity. Other comic clichés were a fish, almost certain to be stolen by a cat, and always represented as a perfect skeleton devoid of flesh but still with the head on, a string of sausages, destined to be grabbed by a dog, the sausages trailing from the dog's mouth like a scarf in the wind, a bull, beware of, in a field, a billy goat, similarly, with a ladder, another portent of disaster. The bump on the head, which might be the consequence of one of these mishaps, was generally described as being as big as a pigeon's egg, something else which, like the banana, I had never seen. 21st of May. A plumpish young man gets off the train at Leeds just behind me. Aren't you famous? Well, I can't be, can I, if you don't know my name? It's Alan something. Yes. From Scarborough? No. So which Alan are you? I'm another Alan. Are you just a look-alike? Well, you could say so. He pats my arm consolingly. 
be happy with that. 24th of May Tim Lott collects me at 6.30 and we drive over to Kensal Rise where I'm to do an evening to raise funds to help pay for a legal challenge to Brent Council's plans to close Kensal Rise Library and five others. Tim is pessimistic about their chances. Libraries for him as much a haven in his childhood as they were for me, though he's 30 years or so younger. The church is full, with Newsnight in attendance, for which I give a rather scrappy interview before doing the reading, which goes well. Back home I'm in time to watch Newsnight, and am depressed to see how scraggy I look, my neck in particular, with every shirt these days looking like a horse collar. There's a studio discussion between Tim Lott and some clown, Underwood I think his name, from the Institute of Economic Affairs. He's an almost comical baddie, shifty and spivily suited, and may be picked out by Newsnight because he's so unprepossessing. He ridicules my assertion that closing libraries is child abuse, in the course of which he describes me as this highly successful millionaire and suggests I should buy the library myself. He also claims, as did Eamon Butler back in 1996, that there is nowadays no need for libraries for which other uses should be found, describing them as prime retail opportunities, which says it all. 8th of August It's the day after the Tottenham riots, and waiting for a prescription in the pharmacy in Camden High Street, I find that though it's only four o'clock, it's already closing, with boards being put up against the windows, and the nice young counter-assistant, the daughter of the pharmacist, who did talking heads for her O-levels, hopes that I will be going straight home. For my part, I've been looking round the shop to see what would come to hand should rioters burst in from the utterly peaceful High Street deciding that something from a tub of walking sticks and fancy umbrellas would make the best weapon. Meanwhile, a couple of addicts, indifferent to these adjustments to their routine, wait patiently for their daily ration of methadone, as I wait for my glucophage, which now comes, the door is unlocked, and I'm again told to go straight home, which I don't think anyone has said to me since I was a child. 26th of October. In bed with a cold, I'm rung by a television company putting together an obituary of Mrs Thatcher. I've not much to offer, though mention the trip I made around 1990 along the M62 from Hull to Liverpool, a trail of devastation, decay and manufacturing slump that stretched from coast to coast, much of it the doing of the Iron Lady. It struck me then that no one had done such systematic damage to the North since William the Conqueror. This produces squeals of delight, but they're not enough to persuade me to say it on TV. Deaf with, and these days even without, my cold, I hear a mention of the stone roses on the radio as Cold Moses, which, as the name of a group, would serve just as well. 20th of November. Though he was ultimately headed for Scarborough, 
Like Queen Eleanor, the wife of Edward I, Jimmy Savile's journey to the grave was marked by several resting places, one of which was the foyer of the Queen's Hotel in City Square in Leeds. I am in there regularly myself, generally waiting for Rupert off the London train, but though I've seen Sir Jimmy in the hotel, as I have Eddie Waring and Don Reavy, all of them celebrities of a similar sort, I missed the lying in state. This evening I head for the corner where I generally sit, but am unsurprised to find an adjacent chaise long occupied by a half-naked young man with his chest festooned in wires and electrodes. Not giving this another thought, I sit elsewhere. The foyers and function rooms of large hotels regularly taken over by displays of orthodontic equipment, investment opportunities in Qatar, or, as in this case I imagine, demonstrations of resuscitation techniques. The wired-up young man is obviously promoting something. Later, the manager passes, who points me out the exact spot where the Savile beer rested, and I inquire about the cardiological demonstration. It turns out not to be a demonstration at all, the man having come in complaining of chest pains. Whether it was then an is-there-a-doctor-in-the-house situation, or that the hotel makes cardiograms available on request, I don't ask, and in any case, the pain has since abated and the young man has left. Rupert's train is now imminent, and with the foyer about to be taken over by a posse of middle-aged men in curly wigs and flares, plus a couple of Alma Cogan look-alikes, I leave too. Thank you for listening. For more, including Bennett's essay about libraries, go to lrb.co.uk.